to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. Not only does J.R.R. Tolkien's epic narrative, The Lord of the Rings, contain some of the most beautiful imagery of the physical world ever put to paper, the beauty of the landscape in Middle-earth is infused throughout with a distinctively timeless moral quality. And opposite the beauty and moral essence of Middle-earth stands a great and terrible evil, which has, from the beginning, rebelled against its creation. The Middle-earth story of creation and fall is found in Tolkien's lesser-known work, The Silmarillion. Keeping in mind that Tolkien never set out directly to write a Christian allegory, we can nevertheless see in Tolkien's creation myth aspects of monotheism and natural theology that somewhat parallel the story of creation and the fall found throughout the Bible. In the beginning of the Silmarillion, we read of Eru, called Iluvatar, the one who created the Enur, being somewhat akin to angels. These are the offspring of Iluvatar's thought. Later, Iluvatar reveals part of his plan of creation to the Enur, who fall silent in awe of what he has revealed. Iluvatar then inspires them to sing harmonious melodies, a, quote, great music, end quote, in which, quote, great beauty has been wakened into song, end quote. There are here refrains from the latter chapters of the book of Job, where it is written that at some point during or after the creation of the heavens and the earth, quote, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, end quote. Within the Ainur's awe-inspiring harmonies, one of their companies, Melkor, is dissatisfied with his contribution, wanting to create power and glory for himself and his part in the song of creation. His song thus turns dark, discordant, and despondent, creating a great turbulence within the created realm. Iluvatar rises to counter Melkor's despondent and tumultuous refrains with a song far greater and deeper than Melkor's. There are now two refrains intertwining, quote, One was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow, from which its beauty chiefly came. The other had achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison, as of many trumpets braying on a few notes, end quote. Tolkien here seems to have prophetically anticipated what today constitutes so much of what we call popular music, made mostly with machines that blare, repeat, and bray discordant sounds into our ears and souls. When Melkor's melody was first heard by the other Enur, 
they faltered in their own music and became troubled. Iluvatar soon speaks directly to Melkor, revealing to him that, quote, No theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined, end quote. Herein is insight to the whole philologistic warp and woof of both The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. There is no evil so great as to thwart the ultimate telos of divine providence. I personally believe Melkor's song serves to remind us that evil always operates with only a partial and incomplete knowledge about what is true and good in the world. When evildoers formulate their plans against the true and the good, they inevitably and unwittingly build into their schemes a fatal flaw that leads to their own destruction. For Tolkien, any attempt to control or manipulate nature for the sake of greed or power is in itself a great evil. The One Ring in The Lord of the Rings, forged by the evil Sauron, was created for the sole purpose of domination and control over everything. The One Ring, however, is not an allegory for any one particular invention of man, but rather it serves as a symbol for man's idolatrous lust for power and control, no matter the historical time period. Whenever I read The Hobbit, for example, I am reminded of my own selfishness when I see Gollum's obsession with the ring, what he calls his precious. It is an obsession that has nearly consumed all that was good about his former self. It is not that any invention or piece of technology is evil per se, but that with each invention or technology we create, the temptation to use it for power and control over people and over nature is ever-present. In this sense, a satellite, a telescope, a cell phone, a gun, a chainsaw, a nuclear weapon, the mastery of certain kinds of knowledge, or even something as seemingly innocuous as a computer keyboard, or even my leaf blower, can all be akin to Sauron's One Ring. But like the example from my leaf blower from part one, God can and does frustrate our inventions and plans with just a simple touch or a word, and in the case of the leaf blower, with just a gentle breeze. My little leaf blower, seen as an invention of man, attempts to emulate wind, but yet when the real wind shows up in the form of a playful zephyr, I'm quickly reminded that my little device is no match for the real thing. the heroes of Tolkien's mythology. The heroes in Tolkien's mythology are not beings in tights equipped with superhuman powers for defeating evil. They are tempted by the same inclinations to greed, lust, power, and control as anyone. They are everyday folk who are fearful, fallen, and often reluctant to do what they know is right, 
often given over to their creaturely desires and habits which so easily ensnare them. They are, however, driven to do what is good by a kindly working providence, an enigmatic illumination that they can neither fully explain nor articulate. Their triumph over evil, as Tolkien so masterfully weaves throughout his narratives, is simply a providential gift that is neither deserved nor earned. When Niggle, for example, finally sees his tree in the afterlife as he meant it to be, he stands in amazement. A profound revelation strikes him. It is all a gift. Each of the characters who imperfectly follow the moral goodness found tacitly and implicitly throughout Middle-earth all seem to be infused with the self-same spirit found in the mythical character of Arendelle, an angelic being Tolkien encountered in the Anglo-Saxon poem composed by Kynewulf in the 8th century. Tolkien wrote a poem about Arendelle in 1914, long before the completion of Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. I believe these two stanzas in particular capture both the nature of the quest of those in Middle-earth who fight against the evil of Sauron and the natures of those characters themselves. Quote, On an endless quest through the darkling west or the margins of the world, and he fares in haste o'er the jeweled waste and the dusk from whence he came, with his heart of fire with bright desire and his face in silver flame. The ship of the moon from the east comes soon from the haven of the sun, whose white gates gleam in the coming beam of the mighty silver one. Lo, with bellying clouds as his vessel's shrouds, he weighs anchor down the dark, and on shimmering oars leaves the blazing shores in his argent timbered bark. End quote. We can see something of ourselves in Tolkien's tales. We are fallen, prone to, and tempted by evil, but also gifted and equipped and inspired beyond our ability to fully understand or explain in order to persevere in the quest in fighting for the good in this world. Tolkien's timeless tales remind us that no matter our apparent lowly or seemingly unknown station here on earth, we are all nevertheless part of the greatest story ever told. By and through God's grace alone, the hero in all of us has a significant part to play. Now, I read Beowulf a couple of years ago, Tolkien's interpretation of Beowulf, and this is uh, something akin to what Beowulf was going through when he fought a dragon. So there's a little bit of Beowulf here in Bard. But here's the fascinating thing. And so as as Bard has got this one arrow left and there's fire going all around him, how am I going to kill this dragon? Um, the chapter goes on and says, Suddenly, out of the dark, something fluttered to his shoulder. He started, but it was only an old thrush, a bird. Unafraid, it perched by his ear and brought him news. Marveling, he found he could understand its tongue, for he was of the race of Dale. Wait, wait, it said to him. The moon is rising. Look for the hollow of the left breast as he flies and turns above you. 
And while Bard paused in wonder, it told him of tidings up in the mountain and of all that it had heard. Now, this little bird perches on Bard's shoulder to tell him about the weak spot in Smog's armor. And so he pulls out his black arrow. Smog flies over. Swing! And the arrow finds its mark. How about that? And that's a classic scene in the movie. It's, it's the, I like the movie scene. It's, it's pretty close to the book. Now, do you think, this, this fascinated me, and this is what Holly suggests, and I think she's spot on. I don't know, of course, for sure, but um, I think she's right. Because I'm about to read to you where, where do you think Tolkien got that idea for that whole scene with the bird? I don't know. You know, I don't even remember reading that passage. Oh, okay. That's in The Hobbit. That's in The Hobbit. Okay. And um, and so I found out as I, you know it's funny because I was sitting here reading and I'm I'm I know that I thought of a poem. Um, one of my favorite poets is uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. So I'm reading, I'm I'm reading through the Tolkien stuff and I'm going. I wonder now. Longfellow was an American poet in the 19th century, and I said to myself, I wonder if Tolkien read. Longfellow. It was just a random thought I had. No kidding. And so I, I'm like, how could I find out if Tolkien read Longfellow? So I open Holly's book. Lo and behold, Longfellow is in the index. No joke. I'm like, mm-hmm. no way. Oh. And so she's got about a paragraph that talks about where Tolkien got that idea for killing Smog. Guess where he got it from? Hmm. The Song of Hiawatha. Oh, really? Yes. And it's uh, where Hiawatha slays the Megasog... I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Megasogwan. All right? So it's not a dragon. But uh, Nokomis' father was killed by um, Megasogwan. And he's a, a, um, a money guy. He's all into money and wealth and he's covered in clams as an armor and he manipulates and steals and kills and so Hiawatha was sent to slay Megasogwan and so this is from the poem Song of Hiawatha this is from the section called Hiawatha and the Pearl Feather and uh, when you read the Song of Hiawatha I taught it in second and third grade you have to read it with the idea of a rhythm of Native American drums. Doom, 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 doom. Okay. That's, a, that's actually the pattern uh, in the meter of the poem. And if, it, if oh. you know that, it helps to read it better. So suddenly hmm. from the boughs above him sang the mama, the woodpecker, aim your arrow, Hiawatha, at the head of Megasogwan. Strike <laughs> the tuft of hair upon it, at the roots the long black tresses. There alone can he be wounded. So, winged with feathers, tipped with jasper, swift flew Hiawatha's arrow, just as Megasogwan, stooping, raised a heavy stone to throw it. And then his, he shoots, Hiawatha shoots three arrows, unlike Bard, who shoots just one. But Megasogwan is killed by Hiawatha. But how is he killed? A woodpecker lands on his shoulder and tells him where to aim. And so huh. in, the, in the story of Hiawatha, the woodpecker is given the red breast uh, as a streak of blood from Megasogwan as a memorial from Hiawatha for his help in telling Hiawatha where to aim oh. 
And uh, but but Holly's not just making this wild speculation because Tolkien she has a couple of quotes from Tolkien who was um, saying how how much he admired um, uh, Longfellow in many ways and uh, so there is that connection there now um, the reason I thought that I wondered about um, whether or not Tolkien knew Longfellow was because do you know the 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 Christmas hymn. Christmas bells. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. They're okay. Yeah. That's uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And there's a movie actually coming out about that this Christmas, I think. Um, but anyway, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It was written in 1863. What was going on in America in 1863? Civil War, right? So I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet. The words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so he goes on through a couple of stanzas about the joy of peace on earth, good will toward men. And then you get to the fourth stanza. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, good will to men. So suddenly uh, Longfellow is despairing because of the war, the cannon's mouth, the accursed black of the cannon's mouth. It was as if an earthquake rent the heart stones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, that was the Civil War. 600 plus thousand men died in the Civil War in the conflict uh, because of this. The battle in which Tolkien was wounded and contracted a fever from his injuries was the Battle of Somme uh, from July to November of uh, 1916. It was a, lasted 140 days and 1.2. One and a quarter million people died in that battle. And uh, that's where Tolkien saw trenches of bodies and just mud-strewn hell on earth. Um, but I want to make the, the character, I want to make the analogy here that what we've been talking about, the moral landscape of Lord of the Rings could fit in the Civil War. It could fit in World War One, It could fit in World War yeah. II because, Wayne, he's not being... Um, allegorically specific about a people, a time, or a place. It's a universal representation of the microcosmic and macrocosmic evil within all of us. So any wartime, any struggle between good and evil, there are people like Bard in The Hobbit or like uh, Bilbo or Frodo or or anyone um, that are heroes, that Beowulf that that are called that are drawn out to fight and to 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 fight the evil of their time and um and you know bard is interesting name for this guy in in lord of the in um in the hobbit because bard is the name a common name for a poet you know so so i think in some sense tolkien saw himself in this fight if you will because he 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 was he felt guilty for not going forth and being able to fight after he recovered, um, he struggled with that for a long time that he stayed back. And I think to some degree, he tried to wrestle with the idea that he was still in the fight, fighting in a different way, in a different from a different perspective, providing a kind of inspiration in a different way other than just the guns and the tanks and whatnot. But um, um, so, so, so whether it's the technology or, or whatever, the evil... The overarching evil could fit into any time, any place, any people group. And I think that's why Lord of the Rings remains so popular today, because it is a universal moral 
cosmology, if you will. It has a way of uh, honoring good qualities in people, and it kind of, uh, you know, I was talking about the battles and the warriors, but there's a there's a dimension of it that it's it treats it like the important thing is not so much the physical but the moral and um you have um it it's a it's a big spiritual struggle in the things that happen in the wars and the conflicts between groups but it's also a very personal thing so the 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 real victory that matters is to have that moral victory that I was talking about. So even if someone uh, loses, in a sense, or they, they lose their life, if they live honorably and they do what's right just because it's what's right, then that's what's honorable. And so uh, a hero is not just someone who wins. It's someone who does what's right because it's what's right. And and it's often uh, sacrificing something, sacrificing their life, giving up something for a greater thing for, for others. Uh, think about in the story, you have the hobbits that have their nice peaceful life in the Shire, right? And they, to them, they they don't go outside the Shire much, and they don't know very much about the conflicts going on um, all over everywhere else. But they, why do they have this safety? Well, they have this safety because these uh, rangers from the north, these Dunedain rangers, are are kind of the the a handful of people left over from Numenor who came to Middle-earth and when the kingdom of Arnor uh, uh, disbanded and broke up and was scattered, those men guarded that territory because the hobbits were there. So there were people guarding the borders of their territory uh, that they didn't even know was doing this. So those people, like Aragorn, was one of those men. And here he was with the right to be a king, but he gave that up for years um, to pursue various other things to help fight against the evil that was going on in the world and resist Sauron. So... It's kind of the uh, emphasizing sacrifice, and um, heroes are not doing things for selfish reasons. And this is a concept that's being lost today, Dan. There are a lot of movies and stories that are being made that are moving away from this concept of what a hero should be. It, because they're giving up on the moral um, sacrifice concept. And if a hero is just um, doing things to benefit themselves, then they're no longer a hero. Right, right. And that selfishness versus the heroic 
is the constant inner struggle that we all have, whether we're pa- parents mm-hmm. or teachers or uh, in, in, in any kind of position and doing any kind of thing. Are we the the way forward is to do some kind of you know doing the right thing, doing what is good, um, and and striving against continuously striving against our, our selfishness. Um, and that is that just just seems central to I think in some sense the Lord of the Rings and uh, I don't think of any one particular character necessarily but I think Tolkien uh, put himself into the story to some degree in terms of that that his own personal struggles with things because he struggled internally with a lot of his own as as Leaf by Niggle points out that he was aware of his own shortcomings and sin um, but you know I want to go back to um, how this idea that the Lord of the Rings just didn't happen overnight. He didn't just wake up one day and go, you know, I'm going to write this long treatise about these men and elves and all this stuff. Uh, it, it was decades in the making. And I wanted to talk about, uh, before I forgot, the genesis of how all of this really got started. What was the spark that kicked in Middle Earth? What was the beginning of Middle Earth for Tolkien, even though it wasn't initially wasn't wasn't quite called that, um, because the Lord of the Rings came together through various different tributaries that fed his imagination and various different influences, both in his reading and his studying and his private personal experiences in World War One. But uh, in 1913, I believe it was, uh, Tolkien was reading the Christ of Kynewulf. It was a group of Anglo-Saxon religious poems. I think it was 7th or 8th century. And um, he comes across, Tolkien does, comes across this line that I'm about to butcher in uh, Anglo-Saxon here. And it, it, it goes like this. Ila Arendel Engla Behortest Offer Midangerd Monum Sended. Now that's the uh, Anglo-Saxon etymology. I'm sorry, listeners. I should have uh, <laughs> told you to cover your ears. <laughs> but what <laughs> what struck Tolkien was Hail Arendel. I'll read the English now. Hail Arendel, brightest of angels, above the middle earth, sent unto men. And Arendelle, as uh, Humphrey Carter points out in his biography of Tolkien, says, Arendelle is glossed by the Anglo-Saxon dictionary as a shining light, a ray. But here it is clearly some special meaning. Tolkien himself interpreted it as referring to John the Baptist, in the poem, that is. But he believed that Arendelle had originally been the name for the star presaging the dawn, that is Venus. He was strangely moved by its appearance in the Kynewolf lines. I felt a curious thrill, Tolkien wrote, as if something had stirred in me, half awakened from sleep. There was something very remote and strange and beautiful behind these words, if I could grasp it, far beyond ancient English. So this Arendelle, it's a reference in the 8th century. It's a Christian poem. But to what tradition Mm. or where did this word come from? in the Anglo-Saxon culture, just drew Tolkien immeasurably toward trying to find out, trying to find out what it meant. And uh, so so there was some, you know, him being a philologist, hmm. uh, God ignites his passion to find out what this meant. So he wrote a poem 
about Arendelle um, himself. Um, yes, no, yes. I... So Arendelle, so we have a couple of things here already working in his imagination. He thought in the poem it, it was a reference to John the Baptist, but it could have been um, uh, Venus, the star that, you know, the, the morning star or sometimes the evening star. In fact, Venus was out uh, just after sunset tonight, and you could actually see Venus and Mercury together tonight if you went out at sunset. It was beautiful. Um, and so he, in, in 1914, he wrote this poem. This is just part of it. Arendelle sprang up from the ocean's cup in the gloom of the midworld's rim. From the door of night as a ray of light leapt over the twilight brim. And launching his bark like a silver spark from the golden fading sand, down the sunlit breadth of day's fiery death, he sped from Westerland. So so you can see kind of a John the Baptist here, right? That uh, he was a forerunner of the Son of God, hmm. right? Venus appearing before dawn, at dawn before the sun as a herald announcing the, the, the arrival of Christ. So Tolkien takes this one step forward and decides to sort of write a, a story about this. Now, Arendelle, Wayne, if you know, who is Arendelle in Lord of the Rings? Uh, he's a man who... Uh, he, Arendelle becomes uh, basically a star. This is the beginning of Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings, though it's 1913 and he doesn't have it all together, obviously. This is what started it. And he wrote this long extended poem. And we're going to read some more of it a little bit here. Um, well, there's a striking similarity between uh, in Lord of the Rings between what happens to Arendelle and and this this uh, actual story that you're talking about. I didn't even know about this story. <laughs> yes, because uh, the the uh, the, uh, the Silmaril was given to him. Yes, um, and this is. And 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 he he wears it in his crown, and it's a it's a spark of the sun uh-huh. that he he carries with him on his journey. And so, in in a sense, um, in the original idea, um, Arendelle is both a he's both he's he's a he's a child of a parent who is a human being and a a mother who is an elf, or it could be the other way around. His dad was human, his mother was an elf, or his father was an elf or his i think his mother mother was an elf but i don't yeah so in a sense what you have here is the idea very simply that um a kind of a cosmology here where stars are like sailing vessels and arendelle is one of them and he's carrying on and 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 is and, and it is to some degree interested and curious about the affairs of men and elves but uh, I just thought that this was fascinating that, that Tolkien's sort of Middle-earth cosmology begins um, with this idea of a man who is kind of like or carries starlight. Let me read a, a letter, something that uh, a note on this that Tolkien himself wrote about this. This was in 1967. Um, and this is from his uh, letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, edited by Humphrey Carter. Uh, these are Tolkien's own words. He said, Before 1914, I wrote a poem upon Arendelle, who launched his ship like a bright spark from the havens of the sun. I adopted him into my mythology, in which he became a prime figure as a mariner, and eventually as a herald star, and a sign of hope to men. Hail Arendelle, brightest of stars, is derived at long remove from 
that uh, Anglo-Saxon I'm not going to read again. Ela Arendel Engla Behortast. But the name could not be adopted just like that. It had to be accommodated to the elvish linguistic situation <laughs> at the same time as a place for this person was made in legend. And so he goes on to, to say how he uh, first, you know, he's going into all the etymology and all the philology of, of this wonderful word that he loves, Arendelle. But that's how Middle Earth gets started. Yeah, and in the story, it fits in because there's a long another long story over how the how that Silmaril stone was uh, taken from Melkor, who had taken it. It was taken mm-hmm. from Melkor and returned to the elves, taken all the way back to Amon, to the Valar. But the Valar wanted to keep Melkor from getting it back again. Melkor had mm-hmm. a limitation that he was kind of earthbound. The earth was kind of what he put him his self into you might say and he, when if, if when it was put into the sky into the heavens with this uh ship from Arendil with that Arendil was in uh this kept it away from Melkor and it became a kind of reminder of the uh this victory over Melkor so that's kind of how it fits into the story but it it's kind of interesting how Tolkien weaves together the the linguistic aspect and the it relates it like another story, but yet it fills, fits into this story in a different context. Yes. Well, you know, he talks about, he, he mentions, and this is the enigma of Tolkien's imagination, where he can on the one hand say that um, the star was a sign of a hope to men, but then in that same um, paper I was reading, um, he also says that he was not, he says, the use of Arendelle in Anglo-Saxon Christian symbolism as the herald of the rise of the true son in Christ is completely alien to my use. In other words, here he is conceding, I'm not doing a direct Christian allegory, but yet there are tinctures and overtones, uh, you know, a light that is a hope to men. So in one sense, it's not deliberately Christian. But in another sense, it's just the air that Tolkien breathed. It was just the atmosphere. It was just the way he told the story that there were tinctures of Christian truth that were not intended to be one-to-one allegories, but conveyed certain Christian truths nonetheless. Um, so but you, so we want to also be careful in saying and, and making direct attribution to something that Tolkien himself said. That's not what I'm doing. But yet there was obviously the influence of his faith and other source materials uh, that he incorporated into the story. Maybe, as, as he said himself, when he was asked by one of his friends, well, what does this poem exactly mean? What, what are you doing with this poem when he, when he wrote it early on? And he said to his friend, he said, I'm not sure, but I'm, I plan to find out. So it's almost like Tolkien gets this Abrahamic call. You know, He knows something has spoken to him from beyond. He's not sure where it's going to lead, but he's going to go after it, right? Um, and and I think that's that's kind of his 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 quest himself. That maybe he saw a little bit of of Beowulf in himself, but he knew he's not one to fight the dragon in in the direct sort of way. But that maybe through his literary craft and through what he constructed in Middle Earth, that he was doing a hope and a service for his own people to give them a kind of a hope through mythological storytelling. Yes, it's so interesting. Uh, um... I don't. 
I don't know the, a lot about the things that Tolkien um, that kind of informed his creating the stories. I I just kind of came to the stories and wanted to know more, you know, uh, and kept reading and reading and reading. Right, right. Right, right. I, and I, I, I've read Lord of the Rings two or three times, and I got into the background of it when I was at uh, Houston Baptist doing my master's degree. So that's kind of how... And I'm not, like I said, I'm not an expert, and I probably have made some suggestions <laughs> beyond what uh, might have been appropriate if, if any Tolkien scholars are listening, Tolkien experts. Um, I, I'm, I'm as much delighted about it as you are. I'm fascinated by his creativity and the way he put things together. Um, he does say something in fairy stories, in the essay on fairy stories, that um, I think sums up kind of the Lord of the Rings in general. It's a, it's a word of his that he created, and it's called a, uh, a eucatastrophe. And he says the eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. So the whole essay is about fairy tales, but but the eucatastrophe, the eucatastrophe is a kind of good news after bad news, if you will, or good news through the bad news. And uh, you can see that all throughout Lord of the Rings, and this is exactly kind of what we've been talking about. There is good through the bad, Wayne. It's uh, Genesis fifty twenty. Yeah, and at at the end of Lord of the Rings, they're in this battle. They're they're attacking the gates of Mordor to draw out the armies and they're outnumbered even after all the victories they've had and it looks very bad for them so and it looks and it's always seemed like this quest that Frodo was on to destroy the ring was a hopeless cause there's so many reasons it seems hopeless 